we've put this perfection of sustainability on the pedestal. And we all think we need to do that where it's like, I'm driving an electric car. I'm only eating food from local farms. I'm completely vegan. I'm, you know, I carry my own bags everywhere. My house is solar powered. Like there's this idea of perfection for sustainability and perfection's not sustainable. <laughs> like by default, it's not sustainable. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast, Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest. Who will introduce yourself? Michelle, please go ahead. Hi, my name is Michelle Auerbach, and I am, this is where it gets complicated. It's mm -hmm. impossible to tell people what I do. I'm a writer. I do consulting in communications, I say with air quotes, and I work with change makers in who want to change individually, organizationally, or change the world in which we live in for the better. Mm -hmm. And I was the kid who was always at every family gathering, you could find me underneath the piano or the dining room table with a book reading, transporting myself into some other world and absorbing all of this information. And it appeared at the time that this was kind of a geeky way of, um, escaping from the pandemonium of a big you know boisterous family but it turns out that I was really preparing myself for life and and I didn't know it at the time mm -hmm. so I went on to go to Columbia University to Barnard College which is the women's college inside of Columbia University and I studied writing and literature there and much to my grandfather's embarrassment because he felt like it was similar to basket weaving in terms of usefulness in the real world um and I really wish that he were still alive because I think I would have disproved that. But um, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, my, him saying, why don't you become a dental hygienist? Why don't you study something that has some sort of actual real world application? And I knew at the time that there was real world application to this, that books and stories and the stories that we tell each other as in individuals, but also like as societies and communities were super useful and important. But at that point, I couldn't put my finger quite on it. Mm -hmm. I was also really, really involved in activism from the time I was a little kid. My first memory um, of political activism was in 1972, when I was four years old and my parents were pulling me in a little wagon around a parking lot, putting flyers under the um, windshield wipers of cars for a political campaign. So, so, Michelle, where did you yeah. grow up then? In which oh. part of the U.S.? I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. Okay. And I feel like that's a huge part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're a Midwesterner, like no matter where you go, you're always a Midwesterner. <laughs> so there was that. And and how many uh, brothers and sisters did you have? So I you had... were alluding a... to a big family. So. Oh, no. I mean, my extended family is very large. I okay. had a brother, one brother and one sister, both of whom were younger than me. Okay. Um 
and strangely, both of whom have followed similar paths. My brother's also a writer mm-hmm. and my sister is an actress. And so I think for all of us that that use of story and storytelling and, you know, whether it's movies, books, my brother does magazine journalism, um, all of those things have sort of helped make us who we are, mm-hmm. which is interesting. So we were also a super activist family. My, mm-hmm. my mom and my stepdad founded um, the free clinic in Cleveland and I was just raised with the idea that making change and doing good by society in a larger sense than even the people you knew or or hung out with was really important. And so there were a lot of there's a lot of storytelling around that in my family too, um, around what justice looked like and and around how to make change and how to create a more um, a society that nurtured and cared for more people. I think that was a really, really important thing that my family passed on mm. to me. So during your study at Barnard, I mean, two questions around it. Why did you go to Barnard? And what were you already active then as well during your time? At oh, yeah. I, f- I didn't I didn't set out to go to a women's college. <laughs> I right. set out to go to New York City. Mm-hmm. which I loved beyond words and really only applied to schools that were in big cities. But I ended up somewhere that was a brilliant choice for me because women's, there's been a lot of research done. And I studied under a professor in college who studied this, that for the for women going to women's colleges actually allows you a different kind of education and a different kind of relationship to classroom, to your own voice, to speaking up. And she also did research that for um, the traditionally African-American colleges, the same thing held true, that students who might in a classroom that had a different power dynamic not be able to get their voices heard, um, that going to a tradi- like one of the traditionally African-American colleges or a women's college completely changed the slate. And so for me, I didn't set out to do that, but I absolutely benefited from what that turned out to be. And yes, I was already an activist there, and I became very, very involved in ACT UP, which was an, is, was the AIDS organization to unleash power that was brought up you know, by the AIDS crisis. And I was involved in sit-ins and demonstrations and all kinds of stuff you know, mm-hmm. through most of college, because it was in the 80s, in the mid-80s, when the AIDS crisis was really devastating New York City. And it became really clear to me that was my community of people, and I needed, mm-hmm. to, be, I needed to be present and active there. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, Barnard College is close to my heart because that's close to the office, the mm-hmm. organization that I work for. It's around the corner, and and my and my niece also went to Barnard, and then you know, uh, work working on AIDS is also close to my heart because that's you know how my career started. Um, I, I definitely know know the, the organization, although my work was more globally. I just think, you know, one of my friends who was incredibly involved in ACT UP and my age, you know, it was very interesting to to grow up doing that, to mm. have it be my like young adult years, because two things happened. One, later on, a, a, a doctor who was doing research on um, post-traumatic stress disorder having to do with AIDS activism called me and said, hey, would you be part of this study? And I got to be part of her study and then talk to her about the results. And one of the things that I didn't realize was happening was that the AIDS crisis caused a lot of PTSD, a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. in the community. People were dying all around you. It was an incredibly traumatic experience. And so that really 
impacted my development as a person. But on the other side, we were able to do something about it, hmm. that the activism that, that we did and, and the ways in which people worked together with, with global organizations, with public health organizations, with, you know, with varying degrees of success, but with government organizations, that those partnerships and those abilities to create like relational partnerships made real substantive change. And so the knowing that that was possible also really changed who I was. So what is interesting then after, but now you went to Colombia where you studied literature and ultimately, you know, you ended up uh, really writing books, which is not always the case with people that study uh, literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go there, because because I would like to talk with you uh, about a couple of books you've written, um, but you did your PhD in another on another topic. So how did that happen? So tell our listeners about it. So I wanted to study storytelling but not from a literature point of view, right? Because in literature, I I have an MFA, you know, a master's in fine arts and creative writing. And that was studying the how-to of how to do it. And it was amazing and I loved it, but it didn't address the like, what does it do aspect? And I think the questions that I've asked myself my whole life are like, what do I do next? And, And how do I do it? And so... That studying how to how to write was one thing, but then I thought there's a really big power to this that's impacted me. It's impacted my siblings. It's impacted the ways in which I've seen change made in the world, and I wanted to study the how of it. And I I really thought deeply about this for a long time because the period between when I got my MFA and when I got my PhD was you know twenty some years, and so what I realized was that the places that change that stories have been used to make change throughout history have happened in our wisdom traditions, in our religions, in our you know philosophical, thoughtful pondering of how the world works, right? And, and, and explaining it to each other. So for things like Buddhism, which don't, doesn't consider itself a religion, but, but is a philosophy in a way, of, a, a way of thinking and being, that's where we actually use story to make change. And so I wanted to be able to dig really deeply into how that works. And so I studied theology, which is sounds very esoteric, like, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But what I actually ended up studying was how does change get made, especially in situations where there's a lot of trauma or difficulty or a lot of external forces that are not friendly to you to the change you want to make or to your community. And so, because I was all in all the activism I did, I saw a lot of people of faith using those stories to help motivate what they did. And so I actually studied leadership and change-making through story by studying theology. That's interesting. Did you, did you also, uh, write books during that period or or I did I yeah. I wrote a well so here's what happened I started my dissertation and then COVID happened okay. <laughs> and in the middle of COVID a publisher that I'd worked with a lot asked Tim Ward at Changemakers Books asked me to take the dissertation research that I was doing and turn it into a book so I wrote this <laughs> Resilience the Life-Saving Skill of Story mm-hmm. and it was all of the how-to stuff out of my dissertation okay. like it wasn't the theoretical you know, I, I did an enormous amount of research. I did over a hundred interviews. I had 
you know, probably 200 hours of, of material of people talking about, um, you know, very specific sociological things about, about the ways in which change is made. And, but I took it and condensed it into a how-to book. And so I wrote that actually before I finished my dissertation, which made mm -hmm. it hard to write my dissertation because my dissertation committee just kept saying like, this isn't, this isn't a self-help book. Like, come on, get, get academic about this. And, um, and I had to keep like, toggling back and forth between writing a book that was really useful to people and getting all the data condensed into my dissertation. So I kind of did both at the same time. Okay. And, and so why should people read it? Because it's actually all the, it's, it's like the tip of the iceberg. It's all the how to's to use for yourself as an individual, if you want to, to work in organizations um, and, and even in activist change-making work, it's like the tip of the iceberg and underneath it is all this incredible research on how our brains are wired to use story, wh whether it is that story developed with our brains or our brains developed with story, you know, since, since the earliest times of any kind of recorded humanity, what we have recorded are stories. Right. You know, and and mm -hmm. people people use those to help motivate people to make change, to help people to make ethical decisions, to help people be more communitarian, to help people to respond to a changing environment. All of that is condensed into this book. It's it's also it was written during covid and and it was very much in response to how do we face into a changing global situation that isn't something that we've lived with before and that hasn't stopped like you know we i think we all thought covid would come and go and it would be over and in fact there are waves of other kinds of changes that have happened in society whether it's political really intense political polarization um a lot of emerging sort of governmental overreach, however you want to look at it, we're still facing those waves of unprecedented experience. And the book really helps to deal with those. Michelle, it's, it seems that, you know, a lot of, uh, at least I read a lot about storytelling and the power of storytelling. But I would like to hear from you, um, you know, what are the opportunities because of that? And but what are the threats as well? Oh, you know, that's so funny. I was just thinking about this last night. So the opportunities that come with storytelling are that you can help people, number one, envision possibility. Because stories are a way to live. Our bodies don't really actually know the difference between reading a story or hearing a story and actually living. The input and the way that we experience it in our bodies and our brains is real. And so we get to do, we get to practice possibility that way. So that's really, really important. Things like science fiction um, and futuristic or alternate world kind of books or even fantasy books help us to do prototyping for the future. They, they're kind of future prototyping. So if you read people like um, Kim Stanley Robinson writing about climate change, he's prototyping possible futures. And 
while the exact things people write about may not happen, what does happen is it becomes a part of our understanding of what, what reality might look like and helps us move towards a better future. So that that's another really good thing. The third thing is it creates incredible relationship and connection between people. When you read a book, often you feel those characters are real, right? I'll use Kim Stanley Robinson again as an example. My daughter was hearing things about climate change after she'd read a couple of his books and she kept thinking she knew someone who worked in the field but actually it was the characters in the book right and she had developed a relationship that was intense with those characters and I think it happens between us as people too so it builds relationality and therefore helps humanize other people helps us to see to deal with folks who we might consider other in a very different way. Um, one of the, I don't think she'll ever listen to this, but one of the ways in which I've been expanding my mother-in-law's horizons is I only send her books by writers of color, mostly women or trans folks or gay folks, and and as presents. And she has not noticed that there's a theme here, but for her, it like it broadens her horizons and she gets to read all these books and get to know these characters, right? So story does that for us. It just broadens our horizons. So like those are all the positive things. So here are some negative things. Number one, because it's a really good way to manipulate our brains, people use it to manipulate our brains. So you see a lot of conspiracy theory using storytelling that's pretty, um, inflammatory, let's call it inflammatory, to get people's bodies to respond really strongly to the story in a visceral way. And that hijacks our thinking, right? When our bodies are responding really strongly, our prefrontal cortex is not online to think through the, the, the like rational kind of, is this true level of story? So that, that can be a very good thing because it can help people do things they didn't think they were capable of doing right, in a positive way, but it's a very negative thing because it helps people to override rational thinking. So that's really a problem. It also, because it inflames feelings in our bodies, it it also can inflame negative feelings in our bodies. More hate, more, more um, othering of people, you know, less belief that other people belong, right? So that's super dangerous. So that's one kind of danger. And the other kind of danger is that there's a way in which when we tell stories, especially about ways in which we've been harmed or things that we have not resolved, we get stuck in, a, in, in what I call a story loop. And you end up repeating the story and repeating the story. And every time you repeat it, you solidify it for yourself. So I've heard people say, just tell me what happened without the story. And at first I was a little bit offended by that. <laughs> you know, like, why, why would I want to hear that? Um, but then I realized, no, no, sometimes we have to learn to separate like fact from story in in order to get ourselves out of a rut, right? So that's the other danger is that we can reinforce our own beliefs, our own vic victimhood, um, you know, by, by reiterating story over and over. Um, so I think the basic skills of story allow you to solve both things. Right. If people mm -hmm. were like storytelling educated, they would know when they were being manipulated because they would know the parts and how it works and, you know, what what that is. So that's another reason to read the book. There's actually a section about about mm -hmm. this in, in my book, but that you would know when you're being manipulated and be able to step back and think about it. 
And also how to use healing stories as opposed to reinforcing stories about ourselves, about people who we may be prejudiced against or not know, right? That you can use stories of belonging as opposed to stories of othering and and avoid a lot of the negative impacts Mm. of other people's storytelling. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I think it's really helpful for listeners to hear that both uh, both sides to that. I would like to go to, you know, a book that is coming soon mm-hmm. and that pe- people can already pre-order and I will make sure that, you know, all the information is there for the listeners in the, in the podcast notes. But you wrote a book together with Nicole Tevita, who I pronounced mm-hmm. okay, exactly right. it, okay, um, called Feeding Each Other. and I have two questions about it. Uh, you know, one is okay, tell us a little bit what it is about. But second, also, um, you know, how is there a link with uh, the resilience, the life-changing skill of storybook uh, as okay. well? And then, if so, how? So Nicole Savita is one of the most amazing people I've ever met, and she does a lot of work in food systems change. She's an educator. She, she ran um, the food systems program at the Masters of the Environment program here at, Colum- here at um, the University of Colorado. She is an agricultural lawyer and she, she teaches agricultural law. She also then moved to Vermont to, to run some programs through Sterling College, which is a, a very environmentally um, centered college in Vermont and to create all kinds of programs. So we've been friends for years and we've used each other's knowledge back and forth in order to, to, to do some change making work. So we worked together with an organization called Project Protect Food Systems here in Colorado. And in 2020, we authored a bill um, to change the working conditions for farm workers in the state of Colorado because one of the ways in which racism was institutionalized in this country was by excluding farm workers and domestic workers from any kind of workers' rights legislation. So, and whose jobs were those? Those were the jobs of black people after slavery. So we institutionalized racism by simply excluding those two groups of workers, which was kind of a shorthand for African-American men and women, excluded them from workers' protections. So one of the things that we did here in Colorado and that Project Protect took on during COVID was to protect farm workers. And we realized that institutionalizing that was the only way it was gonna last. Like the COVID protections were one thing, but once people forgot about COVID, there wouldn't be any lasting change. So I worked with Nicole on that and she helped a lot with writing the legislation that's what she does. And I worked on doing a lot of the preparing people for testimony, writing a lot of the press releases, you know, doing all the communication stuff for this bill. And we realized that the two things really fit together well. And so we undertook this book because we wanted to not only tell people what food systems change should look like, which is Nicole's field, but how to motivate ourselves and each other and how to imagine futures. And that was my job. And so the book came together through those two things. And it's it's got all the information you would ever want about the, the history 
And then all of the like statistics and stuff about the ways in which the food system works, which I think is really alarming when you start to look at it. But it also talks a lot about the goals of the food system, which is not to feed us. If the goal of the food system was to feed us, it would feed us and we would all be fed, right? Like we have enough food. There's no, there's no lack of any of these things. The goal of the food system is to make money. And so when that's the actual thing around which the food system revolves, feeding people becomes ancillary. It's just not the most important thing. So how do you change that, right? And both of us really deeply believe that uh, that relational ethics, that dealing with humans as people we have relationships with, that putting feeding first instead of profit first, these are the ways to make change. So the book is filled with both all of the information you need about the food system, our theories on how to change it, but a lot of how-to that was sort of the next level from my um, life-saving skill of storybook. There's a whole thing in there about using science fiction as prototyping for changing the food system. There's a lot of information about using storytelling for activism and making activist change. So, and then there's a lot of information in there on how, how really, really thoughtful people have used storytelling to create belonging to create more just societies, to create, you know, so, so there's, and, and that's all in there. And it has very much to do with the, like, what do I do? What do I actually do now that I understand that, that this, this problem is one of going from transactional to relational. That's great. What do I do? So that's all the storytelling book in the book. So this book is not only for people from Colorado. I mean, this is oh, for no. anybody that's that, uh, yeah. interested in the topic. Absolutely. And, uh, in yeah. fact, we cover a whole bunch of um, case studies from all over the world, mm. Brazil, and you know, all, all of these different places where people are making change, either by the way they run a business or by the, the way they actually do activism. And so we have change makers from all over the world who we interviewed and whose information we use in the book. So it's as global as the research lets us do, right? I mean, and, and Nicole's work involves creating this program called EcoGather at Sterling College that brought together change makers from Puerto Rico, Bhutan, um, I'm trying to think of the other countries. There's, there's Colorado, there's a, a group in India. So it's very wide ranging. Michelle, you know, for for me, um, you know, changing the system and the food system definitely resonates for me part of, uh, you know, a framework that I'm passionate about in, in lifting up. And that's the sustainable uh, development framework, you know, mm -hmm. countries around the world, uh, actually a lot of civil society was part of that as well, came up mm -hmm. with 17 sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. It's not ideal uh, in, in terms of, you know, it's not, there is no magic bullet for, for all the problems, but I, I think it's the best we have. Mm -hmm. um, so I have two questions about the the, the SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Is one, have you heard about the Sustainable Development Goals? Mm -hmm. um, and if so, um, yeah, what what do you like the listeners to know about that? So yes, I've definitely heard of the Sustainable Development Goals, and I've worked with a lot of clients for whom that's how they they view the work they need to do, whether it's around clean water you know, whether it's around food or um, climate issues, you know, there, I think 
it, you know, it's interesting for people that have never heard of them and don't know anything about them. I think people are really surprised by the comprehensive nature of what's listed there. It's not perfect and it's not everything, but what you're working on probably fits in somewhere, right? And so I think I'm going to tell this from a story point of view. Um, you know, we love to try to have a theory of everything. Like one of the things that novel, you know, big novels, like if you read these large you know, novels that cover generations of a family or whatever, you're trying to cover the largest scope you can think of. And I think the SDGs do that in that there's really like no subplot, no sub story you can possibly come up with that somebody isn't working on and no hero that you know in the world whose heroism you can't say, oh, they're working on education. Oh, they're working on, you know, um, which, whichever one of the SDGs. I think that and here's, here's the downside, and, and there's several downsides, right? People talk a lot about like who came up with the goals and who do they serve and which voices need to be heard around them. But that aside, I think one of the problems is when people are very familiar with them, they use them as a shorthand and it kind of takes away the power of what they're talking about because they'll be like, oh, we're working on SDG 17. And you're like, what does that even mean? <laughs> so I think my advice would be for folks who are working on that to start to see number one how to talk about it in a way that that more that more physically impacts the people that you're talking to. So there are people behind those SDGs. There are stories behind successes or or failures in the system, and humanizing that and bringing out those stories, I think, will help a lot for folks who are doing that work. Um, and the other thing is that the connectivity between them is something that certainly in writing the book with Nicole um, and talking about the connection between, say, climate change and food and then and farm workers rights and educating women, like all of these things are related. And so I think that, you know, for folks who are very familiar with them or for folks who aren't familiar with them at all, beginning to see the relationality between the parts is really useful because that is where the creativity and change mm. is. So that's yeah. the writer's view of the SDGs. That okay. <laughs> may maybe piggybacking a little bit on that. Um, you know, a growing group of people around the world saying, you know, one of the reasons that we are behind, or, you know, we might not reach those goals before 2030 is because we never put attention to the skills ability and knowledge that you need as an individual and as a mm -hmm. community to reach mm -hmm. those goals and, yes. and maybe in the in the sphere of, of integral theory of ken wilber it, it is about you know emphasis is put on on it and its on processes and systems but not on the i and the we perspective yes yes um and as a result they came up with the inner development goals so there are five mm -hmm. goals that they developed as a result of a survey that was done uh, being thinking relating collaborating and action Mm -hmm. um yeah my question to you is if if you hear you know if you hear that you know sustainable development goals inner development goals yeah what is your reaction to that um i love that idea and i 100 percent agree and in fact one of the projects that i am the most excited about is that i with with nicole um, I created a course at Sterling College, which is available to anyone. Um, it's not a course. It's a, it's a five-course certificate program on change shaping. And in it, all of those things are addressed. So 
for folks who work already are activists, have been lifetime activists, or just starting out on an activist path, want to change in their community, there are five courses in there that that center on number one, how do I show up for change, right? How do and, and it addresses those inner um, goals of how do I how do I like keep myself keep myself healthy and strong while I'm doing it? How do I get how do I deal with my biases? How do I like create community? How do I understand the history of what I'm doing, right? And and there there is a course in there on storytelling as a as a force for change that helps to give people the actual really concrete skills of community building, um, taking taking the change out then wider than your community, make coalition building amongst organizations, right? And then there's there's a whole um, course in there on activist history and why that matters so much. Like, why does activist history matter? Why do you need to know how people had success in the past to create the, the future? So all of those inner skills that you're discussing are in this eco-gather course called Change Shaping, um, which we also take to organizations. So if an organization looks at it and says, you know, we as the, you know, whoever community of whatever kind of change want to use this, but we don't want people to go through all of it. We, we bring that to organizations and use that. And I spent months and months and months interviewing people who have made a lot of change, mm. people who have made change in a lot of different fields, not just in, in um, like climate change and food justice in order to bring all those inner skills out mm -hmm. and allow folks access, access to both learning about them, having some practical practice and then also the community building of of being able to take these courses and be around other people who are doing the same thing so i i 100 percent agree that the goals the most worthy goal isn't that useful if people don't understand the how and also the how to take care of myself and my community while doing this because you know compassion fatigue and change burnout are enormous um and you're fighting against a system that's pretty intractable. I think we can do it and, and we have to do it, but it's also very wearing to do it. Um, two quick questions around it. One is where can people find it, uh, of course? Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, so Sterling College has a program called EcoGather. So if you just okay. Google EcoGather and mm -hmm. change shaping, that is what will come up. And then yeah. all the information's there. People can take individual courses. Currently, they're putting together a cohort through Sterling where people will be people from I'm not exactly sure what the organ what the regions are that they're doing, but they're going to be granting um folks access to the course and 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 create a cohort that's all activists and that's free. To those organizations so if you're interested you can reach out to me in in the email stuff that you have and i can hook you up with that because any any person or organization that's doing change work can become part of this mm -hmm. cohort um in order to go through this with other change shapers and not have you or your organization pay for it basically mm -hmm. and and um i was listening to you because you interviewed a lot of people so can we expect a new book about this um, a lot of it showed up in the Feeding Each Other book. Okay. But yes, the next nonfiction book I write, you can absolutely see <laughs> a lot of that will show up. It's going to be a, a very big how-to about change through story. So. Okay. Hey, um, you know, the 
this particular podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile uh, walk that I started in 2012, and I just finished number 11 in the Seattle area and surroundings. Um, you know, a question that I always ask to my guests is, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, or in five days, as I did it this year, um, for which course would you do it? That is amazing because I actually, well, I've done it in kilometers. <laughs> so I, I, for in order for folks to learn to create communities of belonging, to begin to see each other relationally and not transactionally, and to widen the community of people for whom you are making change, I would walk any number of miles. And I have. I, I used to run a leadership development program for youth with a brilliant, brilliant um, person. And the last thing we did was walk 117 kilometers of the Camino de Santiago mm -hmm. with kids um, yeah. in order for them to learn to really dig deep in themselves and do things that that they didn't think they were capable of, but also in order for them to to build community and to all of those things to start to think about belonging and to start to think about the ways in which perhaps the spiritual practices that they have need to leak a lot into their lives and into the activism that they make. Because I think, you know, for a lot of people, the spiritual traditions that we come from have a lot of values that the world needs, <laughs> like love, compassion, care, care for the other, care for people who who may in society be not cared for, who, who may be in some way othered, downtrodden, you know, discriminated against, harmed, that that the idea that you can you can make that change within yourself and within your community. I have walked that long for it in that amount of time mm -hmm. and I would do it again for sure. It, it's so interesting that, you know, when I asked you the question about walking, you quickly talked about youth and children and as well as spirituality. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by the topic as well. I, I talk often, uh, if I'm, you know, I'm accompanied by other uh, walkers about spirituality. And then, uh, yeah, somehow very often about uh, the younger generation as well. And because, you know, you see, at least in the Western trend, that the younger generation is not going to church. Um, like you know the older generation what do you see what do you observe in your community among the younger generation and spirituality and religion that's a really interesting question I heard the best definition of spirituality I have ever heard from somebody about a week ago he said the mm. definition for me of spirituality is relationship mm. so relationship with with some sort of higher power however you define that for yourself and the relationship of a community and people. And I was just like, I mean, I was stunned. I sat there on the other end of the phone, like not able to say anything for a minute, like, oh my gosh. So I think, I think for folks, for younger folks right now, there are really big problems that need to be solved in the world. And if they're not seeing the ways in which communities, spiritual communities, address those problems, it makes those communities feel and actually be irrelevant. Um, but where you see communities, spiritual communities, especially addressing issues hands-on, the, the level of relevance and the level of commitment that you see amongst younger folks goes up. Because I think 
the idea that that what you do in your spiritual life has nothing to do with what you do to address climate change, to address injustice in the food system, to address racism and sexism in the world. That if 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 those two things aren't related, I don't. I think the folks that are growing up right now, and I have, you know, I have three kids and three step kids, all of whom are under thirty, and they all want like where's where's the where's the action like that's a lot of talk where's the action and so i think for spiritual communities to find what they're actually called to do and like roll up their sleeves and do it is is the difference between young folks thinking there's like no space for me in that like i hold that holds no interest for me and them saying okay, yeah, I'm on board, right? The other thing I think is that if you think of spirituality as relationship, then it can be a very private thing. Even, even Even if you're in part of a community of practice, right, that comes together, you're part of a church or a mosque or a synagogue or a Zen center or whatever, it is a very individual and private thing. And I think that there's also a certain amount of like individuality that I see in the way that my kids and stepkids, and also I work with a lot of early career folks in my consulting work. And I work with a lot of youth in leadership development that, that that inner and private part um, doesn't get nurtured and needs to be, and needs to be honored. You know, that how they see God, how they see their relationship to whatever they consider to be the power greater, whether it be nature or community or love or whatever that that we don't there's no box we shouldn't be putting that in a box right we shouldn't be saying oh well that's just this that's just god right or that's just whatever i think those individual relationships um are how in every single wisdom tradition the the greater than has manifested itself in relationship to people and and i think we get very shorthand about it like that's just whatever that's just god that's just And it's not just anything. It's actually, at least in my mind, it's being a prophet. Like if you have a relationship with something greater and you are feeling the need to make change in the world because of that, that's prophecy. And that's pretty powerful. So, but I I think if we don't treat it that way and we don't treat those young people as prophets and truth tellers and speakers of their own experience, I wouldn't want to be part of a community that didn't give me that kind of value. Yeah, so relationship. Um, when when I hear it, I also think about connection and connecting. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, one thing, well, if, if this podcast will help to connect people, you know, that, that would be absolutely great. So that's my little hope. Um, one of the tools that I use is, is uh, you know, connect my guests with the previous guest uh, through mm-hmm. a question. So I have a question for you of the previous guest um, okay. who's asking you, what are you waiting for? If, if you can live more sustainably and you're not, what are you waiting for? So that's a great question. And it's actually probably the right question, right? Like, because I, I think people are waiting to understand. People are waiting to understand how to do it right and perfectly and get, take everything into consideration and, and really get it right. 
And so I would say I am living sustainably, but not perfectly, humanly, right? And that 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 has to be good enough. And one of the things Nicole and I write about in feeding each other is the idea that we've put this perfection of sustainability on the pedestal. And we all think we need to do that, where it's like, I'm driving an electric car, I'm only eating food from local farms, I'm completely vegan, I'm, you know, I carry my own bags everywhere, my house is solar powered. Like there's this idea of perfection for sustainability, and perfection's not sustainable. <laughs> like by default, it's not sustainable. So I think. A lot of us are waiting for getting it right. And I would say, don't worry about getting it right. Put your heart in it, create relationship, see where you can do more and th that feeds you and feeds other people and do those things and they build on each other. So just don't wait for the perfect, for, 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 for perfection because you won't ever get there. And I think that's a way in which we're kind of tearing each other down in the world of, of climate and food systems work because people pick apart other people's perfection in their in their things. I'll never forget, I went to a to have lunch with somebody who works in, in the field and I was interviewing her for, for a book and I drove up in my very old car, which I had made the choice to buy a used car, not to create, a, you know, not to do anything that would, you know, create new cars, right? So I bought a used car. I bought one that, that had good gas mileage. I bought it locally. Like I did everything I could. And she looked at my car and said, I can't believe you're not driving an electric car. And I was, and all I could think was like, oh, I made all these choices with the best information I had trying to do right. And we're judging each other, you know? Um, so don't wait for perfection. Your question for the next guest. So that my question for the next guest is, what can you do today, right now, that would create more belonging and more care? What, you know, what, what small things could you do in your day that would do that? A person called Steve Hartman of CBS, at the moment examines in the US how one simple act of kindness can create a rip, uh, ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Two questions around that for you. What are your thoughts about simple act of kindness and the potential creation of a ripple effect? And then the second part is if I would ask you right now to come up with one simple uh, act of kindness in this week, what would you do? Okay, so the first thing is, Absolutely, I believe acts of kindness create a ripple effect, both internal to the person, because you get a hit of, you know, really good feeling from doing yeah. that. One of the things we've learned from researching people's, you know, people will say, oh, we're basically selfish. We're not. We Our brains are wired in such a way that we actually get a positive flood in our brain from doing nice things. So that creates a ripple effect in us, which I think you know, helps to reinforce change. And the other thing is it really does make a ripple effect in the community because you create a world in which you begin to see other people as people with whom you can bridge, build bridges as opposed to othering them. And I think that's really important. So um, if I had to come up with one simple act of kindness for this week, what would it be? Um, so this happens to be a, a big week 
in the we're talking about spiritual stuff. It's a big week in the world of spirituality. We're in the middle of Ramadan. Um, Passover is about to start. Easter is about to start. Um, and I think that all of I would say for this week that to, to see other people's practices as a way they're telling a story about both their past and their future is, is my act of kindness. To listen to those stories, whether they be stories of Ramadan, um, stories of Passover, stories of Easter, as, as like, this is us telling our history and this is us also telling possibility of the future and to to start to create bridges between those stories that would be my act of kindness if i ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song uh, that best embodies for a big part who you are michelle um which song or piece of music would that be and why? Oh gosh, this is such a hard question. <laughs> so I love music and I love songs. I was, you know, raised by somebody for whom music was really, really important. And I grew up with all this music in my childhood. And so I don't even know how to answer that. Um, I think. Some people come up with more than one song. But I allow it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the most recent, this is interesting, I also write fiction. And the most recent book I wrote, which is coming out in September, is a book called A Power Greater Than Words, which is about a, a, a music writer in Chicago who goes through an experience, a Me Too experience, and all she does is associate everything with music. So I've spent the last couple of years really immersed in music and I'm having a hard time answering from as me and not as her because I just finished editing the book. <laughs> and so I really want to answer as that character who, by the way, does not have my musical taste at all. Um, but, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I could come up with one. So let's, let's do several. Um, so, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm actually going to have to Google the name of this or look in my playlist for the name of the song. Um, this is the funny thing. This is a conversation my husband and I have all the time where he'll actually be able to list the name of a song, the artist, the year it was created. And I'm like, you know that thing with the lyric where it says blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, he has to help me come up with it. Um, yeah. So there's a song called Braided Hair that is, um, I think the group is One Giant Leap, but it's all, so as somebody who grew up Jewish in a pretty um, like waspy town, hair was one of those signifiers of difference. And so this song is like this really beautiful song about the beauty of difference. And, and it's, it's, you know, African-American musicians, but they're, and they're talking about hair and, and the, the ways in which their hair can be beautiful. And for me, that idea of identifying difference as beauty and difference as, as power, the song came out probably 25 years ago and it's incredible dance music, but it's also super empowering about claiming, claiming the beauty of difference. So that would be one of them. Um, 
And then I would also say that there's a singer um, whose name is Ruthie Foster. And she's one of the best um, storytellers I know in the world of, of, of music who's like performing right now. And she has a song called Real Love. Do you have a real love is, and, and is the question that the song asks. And I think that that's, that song by Ruthie Foster also mm. very much speaks to like the questions that I want to ask myself and that I would love other people to ask themselves. Mm. So I will add them to a playlist that uh, we yeah. started uh, on Spotify. If you search for hashtag walk, talk, listen, you see all the songs that were selected by my guests so far. Yeah, any, any last question or message? Um, you know, uh, anything that you would like to say to the listeners? All of us are change makers. All of us are people who, in, in, in every decision we make, in every way that we interact with each other, we're, we're shaping the future and we're shaping change. And so harnessing the power of that to create the world you want to live in isn't something that's outside of your grasp, but something you do already and doing it intentionally and with relationship and belonging at the center um, will make a much bitter, bigger and better world. And we all have the power to do that already and the skills and the knowledge. So do it. Anything I should have asked that I didn't today? Oh my gosh. Um, well, let's see. No, I think you actually covered it all. I'm looking at the list of things I usually tell people they might want to ask, and you really got them all. <laughs> so one last thing. Uh, why should people pre-order the book that's coming out soon? Um, why should they pre-order? Because it's going to be, it's a really fun read. <laughs> that's why. Because I think when we talk about books that have to do with, you know, activism, they can often be really dry and boring. Um, but this is a really fun read with some incredible people in it, not us, but the, the people that we write about and that I think it'll actually make you feel better. We wrote it and we're like, whoa, we feel a lot better about the world than we did before. So if you want to feel better and feel possibility in the world of climate change and in the world of food justice, this book is a, kind of a map for personal action and communal action that will actually make you feel better. Okay. Um, we, we did not really specifically talk about your uh, consulting company mm -hmm. or DACA communications, mm -hmm. but you know, I will make sure that a link is, is there uh, in the podcast notes as well. If the way I understood it, what you uh, mentioned to, to me is, yeah, if, if you, you work with big companies, activists, activist groups, schools, individuals, name it on change issues, you know, the bigger game that they would like to play Con should contact you. And um, yeah, you will be able there to, to help them facilitate, coach, whatever is needed, right? That's exactly right. And it's, it's everything from leadership development in organizations where to create the, the changes the organization needs to get where they want to get to the kind of change that activist groups are making where they may want skill building on things like storytelling, on any kind of communications issues, on 
bridge building and and the creation of of the contacts between communities and also for individuals who are in the process of a big change in their life and need to build some skill around it all of those things we we do thank you so much for today sharing your you know your being your, your knowledge um it was great talking thank you so much thank you so much for having me Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.